Hey everybody, welcome to the Recovering Hypocrite Podcast. I'm your host, Noel Jesse Hakenin, and I'm so glad uh, to have you along for the ride here. And I just want to stop by saying uh, thanks uh, to so many people who have given me uh, positive uh, feedback about the podcast. It has been super encouraging. Uh, as we're kind of getting close to the end of the second season here, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do for a third season, how often I want to put these out there um, into the world. And one of the things I'm learning is that it's kind of hard to get a guest every week. It's kind of taxing to find somebody every week uh, to talk to. And so I'm trying to figure out the best format. That's why I've played around and had uh, the Q&A about my book um, on there for a little while. And then I tried the whole last week talking about Easter uh, before Easter thing. And so I'd love uh, to have your input on what you would like to hear the most out of this podcast. And I will not be easily offended if there's things that you're like, ah, it's been terrible when you do that. So I'd love to hear, do you want more interviews, less interviews? Should I get a co-host? Should I make it shorter? Should I make it longer? And so what I've done is I've set up an email address specifically for this purpose. Uh, the email address is podcast at noeljesse.com. That's podcast at N-O-E-L-J-E-S-S-E.com. And I can't promise I'm going to respond to every email, but I can promise I'm going to read everyone. And I would love to hear from you uh, to hear your ideas for uh, maybe how I could improve the podcast uh, going forward. So um, I'm really excited uh, to dive into today's um, podcast because I have a guest on here that has a dubious distinction. Uh, Scott Sauls is the guy that I like or retweet more than anybody else on Twitter. So I'm tweetable uh, in your your world. Okay. Uh, I'll take that as a compliment. Well, well, you should at least. I mean, me, why but... send out tweets if other people don't retweet? So um, you are a senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, um, and and have written several books. I don't know how many you're at right now, but uh, the most recent book is um, Irresistible Faith. Um, and I have to confess, my goal was to have the whole book read by the time we had this podcast, and I have read the introduction and four chapters. So I may have a very limited view of the book, but in the introduction and the four chapters, this is fantastic. Thank you. Just, uh, yeah. And, and obviously, you, you're playing on the, the term irresistible grace um, with irresistible faith. At least I assume you are as a good Calvinist. I'm actually not. Uh, you know, the... I actually you're not at all personally the the title had to grow on me it wasn't mine I had a couple of other titles in mind uh, it, you know for anybody who wants to write a book don't get too attached to your proposed title because oftentimes the publishers will come up with something different so they they felt like this was the best title um, and then we discovered that Andy Stanley was coming out with a book with the identical title from the same publisher. But then we found out that they reduced his title down from Irresistible Faith to Irresistible. So it was it was in fair play again. But but yeah, the the title's grown on me, and I, you know the publishers do what they do for a reason. They know they know what they're doing, and and so they know their audience, and they know your audience better than you do, and and so so yeah, it, it kind of ended up that way. It's it's been fr- funny how. I'll get sometimes, uh, you know, reformed folks, you know, shooting me messages on social media, calling the title into question and the subtitle into question. And part of me wants to say, well, it was the publisher that came up with it. But se- <laughs> but, but secondly, 
you know, like everything, you take it in context and hopefully it'll make more sense to you. Yeah, so so uh, the same thing happened to me in my most recent book. Uh, the title that we have now is the third title. Uh, I had an initial title that I loved, and I loved the subtitle even more than the title, and that got completely squashed. And then I had a second title that ran up and down and up and down the food chain, and and we ended up on the third title. And so I had to kind of grow accustomed. Now, do you do do you ever tell anyone the original title? Because I, for the most part, keep mine quiet. But do you tell anybody the Sure. Yeah, I don't mind. What was it? Uh, so mine was uh, my idea was a light so lovely, um, which boots off of a quote around which the the book is written. Um, a thematic quote from Madeline Langle, where she says, "We draw people to Christ not by telling them how right we are and how wrong they are, but by showing them a light that's so lovely that they can't help but ask what the source of that light is." Um, good thing we didn't go with that title either because a, a biography of Madeline Langle by the same title came out like five months ago. So, so in your, in the book, um, you actually, that, that question kind of pops up. There is an, a, a non-believing friends, colleagues, and neighbors angle to the book. I mean, I, I'm guessing that's the whole idea. It was interesting because I don't know if this was intentional in, in your part, but, but by the first four chapters, it almost read like a a book on spiritual disciplines oriented around reaching your friends for Christ. And I don't know if that, but it just how you approach the word, how you approach the throne of grace, all of that in a way that would make you attractive uh, to non-Christians in a positive way. Did, it, was that in your brain at all, or did that just force its way into mine? Well, I, you know, I, I think that I think that an attractional faith is a natural byproduct. You know, non-believers becoming curious about our faith, and and many non-believers becoming desirous of of what we have um, is only natural when we're abiding in Christ in the way that we're called to, and living in the kind of community to which Christ calls us. And so, so what I'm trying to do is first and foremost, you know, lead the reader toward abiding in Christ in, in a healthy way and then living in Christ-centered community in a life-giving way. And, and from there, we're, we're poised and resourced to go out into the places where we live, work, and play uh, to live beautiful lives that, um, that are meaningful to our neighbors and to our cities and our workplaces and neighborhoods and so on. Why is it that as Christians, uh, the statement in the book is ironically, the more like Jesus we actually become, the less like Jesus we tend to feel. Why is it the feeling that emotional side of our, 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 our sanctification, our growth and how we're living now seems to so often be out of sync with what reality is? I think that you know, the, the the closer to Christ we get, the the brighter the light of Christ shines on us. Um, which is which is, I mean, you think about the closer you get to sun, the, you know, the sun, the hotter it gets. The more you stare at the sun, the the more discomforting it is to your eyes, right? Um, and and so the closer we get to Christ, the more we realize how wide the gap is. Uh, in truth between his holiness and our sinfulness. Um, but at the same time, the closer we get to Christ, the, the brighter his light 
not only shines on us, it also shines brighter off of us. Um, you know, you think of Moses coming down off the mountain after meeting with God, uh, but he was also, you know, sort of thunderstruck, like, you know, he couldn't even look at God's face. He had to settle for looking at God's back because his face, God's face would have been too much for him to bear. And this is the prophet of Israel, right? And, you know, you look at the Apostle Paul and the end of his life, he's he's more sanctified at the end of his life than he's ever been. He's more bearing the fruit of the Spirit, more like Christ, um, you know, than he's ever been before. And that's that's the point at which he refers to himself as the chief of sinners. And and so I think there is, a, as, as our holiness grows, our awareness of God's holiness also grows with it, you know, because part of holiness is humility, right? And so so it, it, it shouldn't drive us into a deeper sense of shame. It should drive us into a deeper sense of wonder and awe and gratitude that we're included and, and we're embraced and we're received uh, by the love of Christ, um, you know, in spite of the gap, which, which he came to close that gap completely. One of the other things you talk about in the book is the fact that while we're simultaneously sinners and saints, in Christ we're identified solely as the latter, so that is a, um, a, a, a a stunning statement of our position in Christ and how we're seated in the heavenlies, the right hand of God the Father. You know, when He looks at us, He sees us uh, seated. Uh, what does it say in Colossians? Uh, with God in Christ, uh, seated at the right hand of God the Father. All of that being uh, true, one of the things we've wrestled with uh, on this podcast and even in my most most recent book is the fact that. We are identified as that, but we are still sinners. We're still wretches. We're still recovering hypocrites and recovering sinners. And um, how do we balance the tension of those two things in our lives of I am identified as in Christ solely as a sinner or a saint and yet I am a sinner. Like, talk about the tension of walking a life like that and really being able to live, uh, like Jesus said, a, a life abundantly in that. I mean, that's a, that's a tension, right? I don't know if that was a confusing question. It is question, a tension but. that should feel less and less tense uh, over time the more convinced we become that mercy triumphs over judgment in the case of a believer that grace triumphs over uh, the condemning aspects of the law for those who are in Christ. It, it, it should remain a tension um, because we should always long to become more than we are uh, until Christ completes us at the end. Uh, but it should feel less and less tense because we come to believe increasingly over time that our, our status is the beloved of God equally on our worst day as it is on our best day. When people feel like they're kind of uh, going backward in their faith, how do they wrestle with that truth? You know, a, a lot of uh, people that I talk to in uh, my church here, the, the refrain that I hear over and over is, man, I feel like I should be farther along. I should be more mature. And they feel a backward movement. How do they wrestle in light of all the truths that you just said when they feel like their life is going backward? Well, I would say you're right on schedule and, and you know, your, your character actually may be moving forward even as you feel like you're moving backward. 
um, you know, I write about this, you know, some of my own personal experience in, in irresistible faith is, is exactly that. I, I feel less virtuous now in many areas of my life than I felt, you know, back in my early 20s when I first became a believer. Um, but in actuality, in practice, I am more virtuous uh, than I was uh, back back at that time. And again, it's I think the more you mature as a believer, the more you want, the more mature you want to be. Um, and you're never satisfied. You're never settled. You're always visionary toward becoming more than what you are in the moment, right? Because sanctification is a lifelong process. Justification happens a moment in time. It's settled the moment your faith is placed in Christ. You're justified completely and fully from that point forward. Um, And you're established as a child of God completely from that point forward. There's none of it you have to earn. You've already been judged on the cross. Your judgment day has been moved from your future to your past, and it was placed on Christ completely and fully in the cross. He said it's finished. He really meant it. And so the rest of life is, 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 is about bringing to bear the implications of your justification on your sanctification. And I think that tension or that struggle uh, you're referring to happens when we start to base our, justifi- our, our, our understanding of our justification on our experience of our sanctification rather than the progress of our sanctification on our experience of our justification. In other words, we start to put the imperatives in front of the indicatives, the indicatives being those statements in Scripture about who we are, what our identity is, your beloved, your saints, your children of God, your, your, your cherished, your embrace, you're the apple of God's eye. I mean, I could go on and on and on the things that Scripture says about us. He delights over you. He sings over you. He rejoices over you like a bridegroom does over his bride. Um, on and on and on and on, God you know, goes out of his way to, to, to convince us that that we are loved and and um and yet there's you know Kathy Keller you know Tim's wife um you know has said oftentimes that the natural religion of the human heart our default the default mechanism of our heart is self-righteousness in other words we've got to earn it we've got to perform in order to be loved we've got to achieve and bring it in order to uh, be embraced and received, and that's just not true. And the rest of life for a Christian is about deprogramming that hardwiring and replacing it with, you know, the the notion that the indicative comes first and then the imperatives. In other words, grace comes and then law. Uh, I do not condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin, rather than the other way around. And 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 I think when when we start to experience anxiety as Christians about where we are currently in our growth. Uh, it, it can probably be traced back to a, a reversion back into that idea that we have to earn the favor of God. And, and it's, it's often very subconscious for, for Christians, but we subconsciously believe that we have to earn it, that we have to contribute uh, you know, to, to whatever it is that gets God to love us. And, and to receive us and accept us and call us by name. And, and we have to keep deprogramming our belief systems. And, and the interesting thing is, you know, to borrow a, a, way of, you know, a way of using words from C.S. Lewis, you aim at the indicatives, you get the imperatives thrown in. But if you aim at the imperatives, you get neither. Or you aim at, gra- aim at, aim at receiving the grace of God, and you will get a, an obedient life thrown in. But if you aim, aim first and foremost at an obedient life, 
you, you'll, you'll get the enjoyment of neither. And, and um, you know, one of the things I tell our congregation all the time, I write about this in the book as well, is, you know, you will never become like Christ by trying to be like Christ. It, it's, it's, it, 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 it's, it, it's a goose chase without a goose. You will never become like Christ by effort. You become like Christ by being with Christ. Uh, you become like Christ by receiving what Christ has for you. That's that's the methodology of sanctification, is getting clo- as close as you can to Jesus. I mean, you know, the, the theologians talk about the attributes of God. There's there's communicable attributes and the incommunicable ones. The incommunicable ones are the ones that aren't passed on to us. We're not omniscient. We don't know everything. We're not omnipresent. We're not everywhere all the time. We're not omnipotent. We're not all-powerful. But but the fruit of the Spirit represent the, the communicable attributes or the attributes that God communicates to us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But if you think about a communicable virus, um, you know, to use healthcare language, how does somebody catch a communicable virus? Through contact. You, you know, somebody kisses you. You drink after somebody. You eat after somebody. You, you inhale somebody's breath. You get close enough for those things to happen, and, and their virus is transferred to you. Uh, in the same way, the closer you get to Jesus, the closer you get to, to the fruit of the Spirit, and the, the, the more likely it rubs off on you. It's like walking into a barbecue restaurant. Just by being there, you start to smell like smoke. And, and, and you know, just by being around Christ, you start to give off the aroma of Christ in your life. You know, I wonder how much of our disbelief of that comes straight from Satan, really, as the father of all lies, of it. If you think about it, yeah, all right. I mean, well, I, I think there's part of it. Our, you know, obviously, our culture and and people, uh, our sin nature probably helps. Um, but as the accuser of the brethren, that's just that's what he does all day and all night. He accuses, he accuses, he steals, he kills, he destroys. Um, when Jesus is offering life abundantly, yep. That's right. I mean, I've got I've got nothing to add to that. I mean, just Satan's a liar. He is he is a liar and an accuser, and um, I think it's a healthy thing for believers, especially, to develop as best we can the art of discerning between conviction and accusation. Uh, conviction from the Holy Spirit. Um, feels like um, grief and accusation feels like shame. Uh, There is no shame left. There is no accusation from the courts of God left from God toward his children. There is a grief that he wants us to share in. Uh, His Holy Spirit is grieved when we sin against him uh, part of the reason is that when we sin against him, we, we sin against ourselves. We, we, we injure ourselves when, when we sin against him because his law is life-giving. It's not life-sucking. It's life-giving. It's not freedom-inhibiting. It's freedom-enhancing. So, so, so we, we really have to learn discernment between uh, you know, proper conviction, which leads to repentance. And remember, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not our repentance that leads God to be kind. It's God, God's kindness that leads us to repent. And, and so how do you think it feels when somebody who is kind in your life, the kindest person you know, uh, uh, offers you constructive criticism or they tell you that something you just did or said 
hurts their feeling, the kindest person that you know says that you just hurt their feelings, how is that going to affect you? Are you going to be utterly ashamed and afraid they're going to reject you? No, because they're, they're the kindest person you know. But you're going to be, you feel grieved. You're going to feel sad. You're going to want to you're going to want to do a course correction on whatever it is that you did that injured that kind-hearted person. And and so that's the feel of conviction is the feel of conviction is more like grief and, and a lot less like condemnation because there is now no condemnation, zero condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and that's Paul's answer to his own struggle. Uh, in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And then we get the start of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then then that beautiful chapter goes on to the end to say there's also no separation, nothing in all creation, not even you, you're part of creation. Nothing in all creation is able to separate you from the love of God in Christ. So in community with, I'm thinking about just sitting in small groups or church community or Sunday school, whatever you got, with other followers of Christ, and 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 there's sin in their lives that you feel like you need to call out. As you were talking there about the distinction between conviction and accusation, how do we as followers of Christ make sure that we embody the posture of God in 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 sharing with that person their sin and make sure not we're not and obviously we can't do everything satan's going to use our conviction to accuse that's what he's going to do but how how do we as best as we can ensure that we are on the conviction side in sharing with our brother their sin instead of the accusation side you know augustine said that the top three christian virtues are humility humility and humility um you know, when when I think about Matthew eighteen, you really can't you really can't put Matthew eighteen you, to practice without coupling it with Galatians six, which is Paul's version of Matthew eighteen, where he says, "If any of you is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore that person gently, and watch yourself that you lest you too be tempted." And so, there's several things in in there that he says about our posture when we're offering constructive feedback to somebody. You know, he, he says that, that, that our posture and tone has to be gentle or it's not of Christ. Uh, second, um, we have to watch ourselves. Uh, otherwise, we get into logs and specs really quickly, and we have a plank in our eye before we realize it. And, and it's very legitimate to remove a speck from somebody else's eye because a speck can lead to infection, right? A speck is uncomfortable. A speck can cause all kinds of problems in a person's eye. But our posture always has to be, I'm the number one sinner in this conversation. I am the worst offender in this conversation. Uh, otherwise, why would Jesus talk about logs and specks in the way that he did? And so that has to be our position and posture toward one another. That I come to you, I love what... Um, I think Luther was the first one who said it. Uh, Steve Brown has popularized it in today's evangelical world, but that we're all beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. And, you know, if, if we come to another beggar and act like we're, we're a rich person, uh, you know, with all the answers, then, then we're not coming to them in the spirit of Christ. Um, and, and I think it's important to regularly remind ourselves, too, of, of the humbling that Christ did of himself when he had no reason to humble himself, um, 
we have reason to humble ourselves, but Christ had no reason to humble himself, and, uh, himself, and yet he did, um, to put himself on our level. Uh, he became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And, and, and so, you know, again, cultivation, cultivation of a nearness to Christ, cultiva- cultivation of, of the practice of being with him uh, ought to help us with that posture. That's awesome. So uh, the book uh, by Scott Sauls here is Irresistible Faith. And uh, like I said, I've read the introduction in four chapters, and I can highly recommend that much of the book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm sure the rest of it will be just as good. So the meat of the book is actually uh, the middle and the end. So, uh, you know. uh, Well, well, my intention (laughs) is to finish it. My goal was to do it, and I didn't quite get to it, but I I, I shall. um, Because really, like I I said to you before, I have uh, grown so much uh, by even just your tweets. Your tweets alone um, uh, are often a mic drop for me. So the book itself is, is so much more than that. And so just thank you so much uh, for all that you're doing for the glory of God and the fame of Jesus and uh, really making the gospel irresistible uh, in just your community there in Nashville and around the world. And I think that, uh, you know, in... in in the best of circumstances, we will all fade away into obscurity, and no one will ever know who we are, and Jesus will be famous. Um, but uh, your your piece of that is going to be significant. Uh, so thank you so much for all that you've done, Scott, all you continue to do for Jesus. Thank you. Appreciate it. 